Good morning. Today's reading is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it out and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. Well, as the bulletin cover may have alerted you, Today we hear two stories about vineyards. First, there was the prophet Isaiah's love song about the owner of a vineyard. And now Jesus tells a parable. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A football coach has led his team to new heights of success. There's some real stars on the team and the victories are piling up. But there is a sourness beneath the sweet success. The athletic director learns that there has been hazing by those star players of some of the younger and less talented players and the head coach knows fully of what's happening. But even worse, there have been a number of sexual assaults perpetrated by some of those stars. And the head coach has told others to look in the other direction. The athletic director decides he must fire the coach. Success on the field is great, but not at the expense of a culture of abuse off the field, he declares. Can you blame him? That is the athletic director. Two parents work, scrimp, and save so that their daughter can attend college. They gulp when they see the cost of her first choice, particularly since they know that she can have a generous scholarship to a smaller college. But they want what she wants, and so they send her off with great joy and hope. Then the reports come back about all the great parties. She goes to the hospital one weekend night with alcohol poisoning. The grades come back, and they are abysmal. She has found time for the parties, but not for classes. And so at the end of that first year, the parents tell her that one more semester will be on their dime. But if there is no change in her behavior, no significant improvement in her grades, then she will be on her own. They were glad to invest in her education, but there's a limit to how much they will spend if she doesn't do her part. Can you blame them, those parents? A vineyard owner pours his labor and money into a new field. Stones are cleared. Choice vines are planted. At considerable expense, a permanent tower is erected where the foreman can oversee the work done on the vineyards during the day and a watchman watch over it at night. At more expense and labor, a large vat is hewed out to receive the grapes so that they can be prepared to be fermented. But after all that time and expense, the grapes are wild, or it can also be translated rotten or sour. They're good for nothing. The owner gives up on that field and lets it turn wild again. Who can blame the owner? That's the question that the prophet Isaiah essentially asks here in chapter 5 in the first passage we heard today. It's a rhetorical question, for really there's only one answer. No one. No one living at the time of Isaiah would expect the vineyard owner to keep on planting grapes if they keep coming up sour and keep coming up of no use. It would be foolish to do otherwise. This being the Bible, we know that the prophet is not just talking about vineyards and vineyard owners. No, the vineyard is Isaiah's home country, Judah. And he is speaking to the Israelites. God has chosen you. God loves you. 
God has invested in you, freed you from the Egyptians, took you through the wilderness, gave you this land, has protected you from your enemies. But now what do you do? Your leaders trust more in alliances with outside powers than they trust in the Lord. The rich abuse the poor. And instead of doing justice, those with power abuse the powerless. God is faithful and loyal, Isaiah tells the people, but there are limits. In light of all that God has invested in these people, and in light of the sour fruit they have produced, who could blame God if God indeed permits Judah to be overrun by its enemies? As with the coach, as with that wayward college student, no Israelite would have any basis or complaint. Jesus also uses the image of the vineyard in Matthew 21, the passage that I just read. The setting is Jerusalem. It is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus knows what's going on, of course. He knows that His enemies are encircling Him, and indeed, they are listening on as He speaks to the crowds. His arrest. Indeed, his execution are only a few days away when he tells this story about the vineyard. And the story that Jesus tells is the story that Isaiah told on steroids. Because now the focus is not just on the sour grapes, the focus is on the tenants themselves, and these are wicked tenants. When slaves come, sent by the absentee owner to collect the rent, the produce on the grapes, they not only refuse to pay, they stone those slaves, they kill them. And not just one wave, but another. And then the owner, foolish owner that he is, sends his only son thinking they'll respect him. But in fact, as we know, as we heard, they kill him. And then Jesus asked the crowd, now when the owner of the vineyard comes after all this, what will he do to those tenants? With one voice they respond. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the produce at the harvest time. Who can blame the owner? Who would do otherwise? The religious leaders who stand at the edge of the crowd listening to Jesus, they're no dummies. They know that he is talking about them. Jesus is comparing them to those wicked tenants. And so they have yet another reason justifying their hatred of Jesus, justifying the eventual arrest, justifying silencing his voice forever. These two vineyard stories are powerful stories. They're stories well told by both Isaiah and Jesus but they've often been misunderstood and misused by God's people through the century. These passages and others like them have been used to justify and celebrate the replacement of the Jews by the church as God's chosen people in a way that has fueled fires of anti-Semitism. A disturbing number of popes and bishops and Protestant leaders, including Martin Luther, have taught that because the Jews rejected and killed Christ, they were somehow a reprobate people, 
deserving of condemnation and even violence. And let us remember that the greatest atrocities that were committed in the last century committed not by Islam, but by people in a Christian nation. But such an interpretation has been given by these church leaders is wrong, not just because of the consequences, it's a wrong reading of the scriptures for two reasons, or two levels. First, if you really pay attention, the Jews are not being rejected totally in either passage. Isaiah calls for repentance and predicts defeat if the people do not repent. But that defeat is not a sin. Is not a sign of God's abandonment or total rejection. The Israelites remain God's people, and they will be sent to exile, but they will also be brought back home. And Jesus is not comparing the wicked tenants to all Jews. He's not rejecting all the Jews, only those leaders who question his message and undermine his authority. Remember, Jesus was a Jew and all 12 of his first disciples and the early church were Jewish. But second, at a deeper level, we have to recognize that these passages speak now primarily to us, the church, rather than Jews. Religions, including Christianity, are at their worst when they aim passage of judgment towards others out there rather than turning them inward. When we aim those judgments at others, what happens is arrogance, self-righteousness, and scapegoating of outsiders. It's exactly what Jesus is condemning in the religious leaders of his day. Now Jesus wants to be aware first of the log in our eye before we try to reach out and take the speck in someone else's eyes. So then, let us aim these passages back at ourselves by asking, in light of God's investment in us, in light of what God has done, the cost that God has undertaken by coming in Jesus Christ and dying on the cross for our sins, is God getting a good return on God's investment? Are we bearing sweet fruit or sour grapes? Are we doing justice, or are we, like the people back then, ignoring the cries of the powerless and downtrodden? When it comes to speaking about God's judgment, there are many Christians in many branches of the church that like to treat God's judgment in binary terms. That is, either or. Are you saved or not? Are you going to heaven or hell? Will God give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down? But as a friend once said, Jesus was not just interested in converts. Jesus wanted disciples. Jesus loves us as we are, but Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. God's judgment is more than a simple thumbs up or thumbs down. God's judgment, when you read the scriptures, is the purifying judgment of a refiner's fire that burns away all that is pure and contrary to love and justice. God's judgment in Jesus Christ is the discriminating judgment of the vineyard owner who roots out those vines that will not bear sweet fruit. 
we may indeed be welcomed in heaven, but our sin that persists in us will not be. Because there is no place for sour grapes in God's vineyard, no place for sin, no place for injustice in God's kingdom. At the cross, Jesus did not just die for our sins, Jesus also died that we might have new life. Or in the words of the theologian Vereslav Volf, the cross is not forgiveness pure and simple, but also God's setting aright the world of injustice and deception. God's cleansing judgment, unmasked deception, set things right, and rebalances the scales of justice by lifting up those who have been ignored or oppressed or abused. If we are the vineyards, if we are the grapes, how will we be judged? Consider the fruits that Paul lists later in Galatians. Love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we bearing those fruits? Are the lives we are living worthy of God's investment in us? What needs to change so that we are more fruitful? And are we willing to be pruned of all that prevents us from bearing those fruits? Or consider the cry of the prophet Isaiah for justice. Justice in the Old and New Testaments is more than just fair procedure. It is caring for the least of these, for those on the margins of society, for the poor, for minorities, for outsiders, for the old, for the young, for the vulnerable. How are we doing here? How are we working for justice in the world, in our country, but perhaps most importantly, in our zip code? Where do we need to change so that we are more part of the solution rather than part of the problem? When it comes to doing justice, here is something really important to note. The quest for justice always begins with listening and paying attention because God's justice requires us to listen to those that others are ignoring. We have lots of people these days shouting their opinions, whether on television or the internet, but not just public people. People that we know, ourselves on Facebook or other social media or just frankly in face-to-face -face conversation. But to do justice, to do justice, we have to be willing to close our mouths and open our ears and our minds. We have to be willing to learn something new so that we can do something new. For example, no man knows fully what it's like to be a woman in the workplace. No white person knows fully what it's like to be a person of color in this society. No person who has ever worried, never worried about food on their table knows what it's like to not be sure if there'll be food next week, not to be sure if there'll be a roof over their children's heads. No person with full eyesight or hearing 
or mobility or memory fully knows what it is like to be physically or mentally challenged or disabled. We can only learn by listening before speaking. By setting aside our prejudices, our prejudgments, and opening our minds to new ways of thinking. Opening our hearts with compassion and a willingness to grow and change. Doing justice, bearing good fruit will require change because frankly there's a bit of sourness in all of us. And changing can be hard. It's usually easier to remain the way we are, to hold on to all those assumptions and prejudices we've always had, to keep acting with the same habits that we have shown before. Change can be painful. But in God's hands and according to Christ's wishes, when we undergo the pain of that change, it is like the pain of surgery. We may feel worse at first, but it is necessary for our healing. Isaiah 5 and Matthew 21 are passages of judgment. Jesus did not come that we might escape judgment. That is the discerning and sorting out by God to put things right. Jesus came and died and was raised so that sin might no longer have power over us. So that we might be transformed. And judgment is part of that process. Because this is what God's love does. As Frederick Buechner has written, Jesus is our judge, which means that the one who judges us most fully is the one who loves us most fully. Christ's love so wishes joy for us that it is ruthless against everything in us that diminishes that joy in us or in anyone we might encounter and affect. So what do we do when we read these passages like Isaiah 5 and Matthew 21 and we recognize ourselves in them at least a little bit? We fall on our knees. We see where we have not borne good fruit or been instruments of God's justice. We fall on our knees with regret and penitence and humility. But we do not stay on our knees or wallow in guilt because Jesus has come down to raise us up and to send us out. Friends, we have been saved, but it doesn't stop there. We have been saved with a purpose. Let us be sweet fruit, worthy of the investment of love that God has made in us through Jesus Christ. And let us go forth and recommit ourselves to serve God, to love others, and to work for justice for all. Amen.